This is New Life Christian Fellowship's weekly sermon podcast. You can find us online at newlifepetaluma.org. And now, this week's sermon. You know, you and I have walked past many people like that, driven past people like that, probably with a lot of different mixed emotions. As they were singing that song, I was reminded of one fact that's almost for sure. If you could find the mother of everyone who's laying in the street and you could bring her there and you were to ask her, what's his soul worth to you? What's her soul worth to you? You couldn't name a price too high. And the great reality is that as much as that soul is worth to its mother, it's worth even more to the one who made it. You know, Michael began by saying, what's it worth? How much would God pay for one human soul? Well, the answer is very simple. The Bible says, for God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son. In short, God wrote the whole Bible, got up off of His throne, left heaven and came to earth so that you would know what your soul was worth. And here's the plain and simple truth. Our soul is often more highly valued by God than it is by us. And some of us maybe have not, probably all of us have had seasons in our life where we haven't taken very good care of our soul. In fact, for some of us, it's, we've almost completely neglected it. Well, my prayer is that this morning, something we do in this service, something God does in your heart while we are together this morning, will cause you to value your soul more than when you got here. If that happens, then it will have been worth our while to be here this morning. I want to welcome you. Um, on the inside of your program, there's a half sheet of notes. It's fill-in-the-blank style notes, and we provide those for you so that you can follow along and hopefully take it home with you, read through it, and learn from it. And we are in a sermon series called Nine Days in the Life of Jesus, and we're actually, we just have selected nine specific days throughout the three and a half years of Jesus' ministry on this earth. And uh, we're going to be taking a look at what took place on those nine days, and This particular Sunday is only Sunday number two in that series. And you'll see that the title of the the sermon is Getting It Right from the Start. And uh, I I just want to remind those of you who were here last week and for those of you who are new to New Life, uh, I want to give you three words that are really important. They are the words, think, act, and be. And as we take this journey through Jesus' life, I want to encourage you to absorb as much as you can, because the deal is, in order to be like Jesus, you have to act like Him. And in order to act like Jesus, you have to learn to think and see life as He sees it. And my guess is that through the song that you just heard and through the drama that you just witnessed, that at least for a moment or two, you were able to look at a life through the eyes of Jesus and begin to grasp what even one 
human soul is worth. The deal is, if we could learn to think and see and perceive like that every day. And then every moment of every day. Because the goal in life is to become like Jesus. Now I want to say one thing to the mothers this morning. And that is, you talk about getting it right from the start. I don't know of any other group of people who works harder to get people started right than moms do. I mean, from the time they first hold that little baby and and caress it and talk to it and sing to it and and begin to train it in all of the basic life skills, mothers have one goal in mind, and that is, what can I do to give this child the best start in life they can possibly get? And I think it's just so fitting then, because mothers understand the value of that soul, I think it's so fitting then that we talk about how Jesus started His ministry on this Mother's Day Sunday. Because He also wanted to get you and me started right. He wanted to get His ministry started right. So it's as if He just said, okay, here's what I'm going to do in my ministry, and He laid it all out. He gave kind of a preview to His entire ministry. And I want to tell you that this is one of my favorite passages about Jesus. And um, I could preach for about six months. So we're going to take six months and put it in about 25 minutes. So listen quick and get ready to write, all right? So we're just going to work our way through this passage. And it's in Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 16. And the passage begins like this. When he came to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood home. There's a wonderful truth here, and that is Jesus was up front with the people that were closest to him. Jesus was up front. I mean, he didn't have any hidden agenda. He wanted the people from his hometown of Nazareth to know something about him because they were going to struggle with Jesus, and he knew that. And yet these were the kids that had grown up with him. These were the families who had watched him grow up from from a young child through adolescence on through his teenage years. These were the people who had come to the carpenter shop and had seen Jesus in the carpenter shop. These are the people who had heard that Jesus had been baptized and he had launched a ministry. And so one of the first things Jesus did is he went to the people of his hometown and said, I want to tell you the truth about myself. He started by being up front with those he was closest to. By the way, if you want to do well as a Christian, one of the best things you can do is be straight up with the people who are closest to you and know you best. Because the more straight up and honest and open and transparent you are with them, the more likely you are to grow and develop as a follower of Christ. But if you have hidden agendas... It's just eventually that's all going to come out in the open and life's going to be tough. So the second thing, the the passage goes like this. He went as usual to the synagogue on the Sabbath. What I want you to see here is something you may not know about Jesus, but Jesus went to the synagogue only on weekends. Now that made him remarkably different from all the other religious leaders of his day. I didn't put fill in the blanks for you to write this down, but I want you to hear it and, and, and if you want to write it down on the margin, it's well worth noting. Religious people tend to hang out in religious places where irreligious people are unwelcome. 
I want to say that again. Religious people tend to hang out in religious places where irreligious people are unwelcome. You know what's really sad about that? Many of the churches in our country and around the world would fit that definition. They are religious places where religious people feel welcome, but irreligious people don't. Can I tell you how blessed I am as pastor of this church to watch you people Sunday after Sunday after Sunday open your arms and embrace into your world people who are irreligious and far away from God because you recognize that their soul is just as valuable to God as yours. That's a great thing. You know why Jesus only went to the synagogue on weekends? He was often at odds with the religious leaders of his day. Why? Because they gathered down at the local synagogue and they judged the people who didn't show up at the synagogue. And Jesus said, you guys can hang out at the synagogue all day long if you want to. I am going out with the people. So Sunday through Friday, Jesus was out with the common people and he was loving him. Yes, they were considered irreligious and contaminated by the religious leaders, but Jesus saw them as wonderful people for whom he was going to die. So he would not only die for them, he would live with them. So why then did he go to the synagogue on Saturday. <laughs> Very simply, because in that culture, everyone went to the synagogue on Saturday. So if Jesus didn't go to the synagogue, he had no one to talk to, right? And he loved people. He came for people. He went where the people were. You see, Jesus didn't come so that religious people could be even more religious. He came so that those who felt separated from God could learn to be loved by Him and learn to receive the love of a God who loved them dearly. So going on, he stood up to read the Scriptures and the scroll of Isaiah the prophet was handed to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where this was written. Now this was a very usual thing in a synagogue at one point in their service. Uh, by the way, for those of you who might not know, a synagogue is basically just a Jewish church building, okay? It's where the Jews gathered to worship and, and to study uh, God's Word. So he, at, at one point in the service, they would hand the scroll to someone in the audience that they had pre-selected. In this particular case, it was Jesus they had heard. He had launched a ministry, and, and so they said, okay, as the new teacher in town, here's the scroll. Jesus took this scroll of Isaiah and he could have read anywhere in it, but the Bible says very specifically he turned and turned and turned the scroll until he found a specific scripture he wanted to read to them. Now Jesus chose this specific scripture because it gave a macro view of the nature and purpose of his ministry. A macro view is, it's like you could back way up and in one glance and, and in, in, in one moment, you could see 
Jesus' ministry all the way from the very beginning, all the way to the very end. You could see the whole thing in one shot. And Jesus said, if you want a a one-sentence description of what my ministry is all about, here it is. It was prophesied by God some 700 years prior, but the deal is it's so outside the box of what you people expect that if I don't show it to you that it was prophesied in Scripture and was therefore according to God's will, you'll never believe me. But I want you to know that the ministry I'm about ready to launch, God already said this is what that ministry is supposed to be like. And sure enough, Jesus' ministry was well outside the box of what they expected. So... How did Jesus describe His ministry? How did He kind of get it right, right from the very beginning? Here's what it says. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for He has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. This is what I call the meat and potatoes of the passage. Jesus said, you want to know what my ministry is? Here it is. There are five things in there that any one of them could easily make a whole whole sermon or even a whole series. So listen quickly. I'm just going to barely hit the high points. The first thing that Jesus wanted them to know is that His ministry would evidence God's power. He wanted them to know right up front, this is not a human endeavor. And you know something? My prayer for you is as you've come in here this morning, that, that you would be able to sense that what takes place in this church is not a human endeavor. This is a divine endeavor. Now Jesus could also say that He was God in the flesh. No one here can say that we are God in the flesh. But we can say that the Spirit of God is upon us as it was upon Him. And that's the wonderful thing about being a Christian that we then get to experience God's Spirit living in us. We'll see in a minute that makes remarkable changes. But the first thing he wanted to know, he wanted them to know, by the way, you know what guys love to do? Get the big four-wheel drive pickups, right? And especially in this day and age, until diesel went up to four and a half dollars a gallon. Guys wanted diesel pickups, right? And on the outside of it, if it was a Ford, it would say, Power Stroke, right? And if it was a Dodge or Mopar, it would say, Powered by Cummins, right? And if it was a Chevy, it would say, Powered by Duramax. Why do we do that? I'll tell you why we do it. We do it because we take pride in what we're powered by or driven by. Jesus said, I want you to know right up front, I am powered by the Spirit of God. That what you're about to witness is not human endeavor, it's divine endeavor. The second thing, that truth that Jesus wanted them to know, was that He was the Messiah they had long awaited. It's not nearly so evident in English as it is in the original language in which the Bible was written Greek, or uh, which is the New Testament, or even the language that the Old Testament was written in, which is Hebrew. Let me give you a couple of words that I'm sure you've heard. The Hebrew word uh, is the word Messiah. Well, that's the English form of the Hebrew word, Messiah. 
And then the Greek word is Christ. Or it was Christos, but it's we, the English word is Christ. They mean exactly the same thing. And what they both mean is anointed one. So when Jesus said, the Spirit of God is upon me and He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, everyone in His audience knew that what He, is, what he was saying is, I am your long-awaited Messiah. I am the anointed one of God. He was right up front about that. Third truth. His message was one of good news and not condemnation. Remember a while ago I said that it's the nature of religious people to hang out in religious places where irreligious people are not welcome? Well, guess what? It's also the nature of religious people to accumulate rules. Okay? If you grew up in a more legalistic church, you probably had a whole collection of rules. Right? And you know the interesting thing about rules? Religious people make the rules, and then you know what comes with them? Condemnation for everybody who doesn't quite measure up. Yeah. I remember preaching at a church one time. I don't remember for sure what I preached about, but I remember an older lady who met me at the back door. And she said, you know, I'm not sure this is okay, but can I tell you I really enjoyed church today? He says, is that okay? I said, well, what do you usually do at church? I'll never forget what she said to me. She said, I usually feel like my toes have been stomped on and I go home feeling guilty. I said, ma'am, do you mind if I ask you how many years you've been a Christian? And she gave me a number that was like twice my entire lifetime at that point, right? I think she said 50 or 60 years, and I was a pastor in my 20s. I gave her a hug. I sent her on, on her way, and I thought, how sad that here's a lady some 50 or 60 years ago who signed on to follow Jesus, and the best she can get out of her church is to get beat up every Sunday. Now, what did Jesus say? The Spirit of God is upon me, and He has anointed me to preach good news. You know, the basic message of Scripture is great news. And the good news is simply this. Yes, God is good, and that's wonderful news. Because can you imagine how tough life would be if an all-powerful God was actually bad too? That'd be tough. So this is good news But there's a bad news that's connected with this good news. And the bad news is this. If God is good and holy, and I'm a sinner and unholy, we're not going to mix very well. And that's true. But here's how it gets good again. Because the God who is so good has recognized that I'm not so good, and He's made a way for me to be made good again. And that, my friends, is great news. That leads us to principle number four. His message would radically change people's lives. How did Jesus describe it? He said, this is going to be like good news to the poor. This is going to be like sight to the blind. This is going to be like release to the captives. And this is going to be like freedom 
to the oppressed. I wish I had time to break each one of those out. I don't really have time. But those are all powerful uh, word pictures and metaphors. I I want you to use your imagination and just go three different places with me briefly. I want you to go into the life of a man who's been born blind and he's in his mid-30s and for some wonderful, strange, and miraculous reason, someone walks into his life and says, Hey, Joe. I know you've never seen anything in your life before, but at 9 o'clock tomorrow morning, I'm going to perform a procedure that's going to give you 20-20 vision. Would you like to see Joe about 9.15 that morning? You talk about somebody whose world has completely changed. Faces that he's only known by feeling them and trying to imagine what they're like. He can now look and look into their eyes. The sun that he's only felt the warmth of on his skin, he now sees in living brilliance. Flowers that he's only been able to smell before, he now sees in radiant color. Every waking moment of his life will be different from that moment on. Jesus said, when I give you my message and you embrace it into your life, it will change every waking moment of your life. Like that. It's like giving sight to the blind. Now go back with me a few years ago to an event that probably many of you, maybe most of you watched on television the day that the Berlin Wall came down. Do you remember watching people with sledgehammers breaking that wall down? Do you remember when whole chunks of the wall fell down and people began to celebrate with joy and they rushed across the rubble of the wall and they began to search for friends and relatives that they had been separated from for decades? Wow when the captives have been set free, every moment of their life from that day forward is changed. Go back with me a few years prior to that. The very last day of World War II. Go with me inside the Nazi concentration camps of Germany and Austria and Poland and that whole area. On this day, Many people on the inside don't know. But the gates are about ready to open. That's nothing new. Only this time, there's no truckload of doomed people who have come to their destruction. On this day, there are no guards standing at the gate. There are no guns. This day, the gates swing open and all inside are released. Those who can run, run. You think their lives are ever the same? They begin searching for relatives that they've been separated from for years. They go looking for jobs. They go looking to start their lives over again. Now, go back to the passage and see what Jesus said. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to preach good news. And it's going to radically change people's lives. 
One of the greatest things about being a pastor is you get a front row seat to life change. You get to see people come who are oppressed from their childhood and they carry that oppression right into their adult life. And long after their parents are gone, they're still oppressed by the negative things that their parents have said to them. And Jesus comes in and begins to wash away that oppression. It's a great thing. Principle number five. He would usher in the season of God's favor. Oftentimes people will say to me, you know, Pastor, we live in a world where terrible things happen. Where is God when those terrible things happen? Now, you know what I want to say to them? Although I don't. Oh, you mean when God, when people curse in God's name and He doesn't strike them dead? That's kind of horrible, isn't it? Have you ever asked yourself, Why is it people can curse and swear in God's name and deny His existence and He doesn't do anything about it? Listen, we live in the season, in the age, or as Jesus said, the time of God's favor. And so, you and I witness people taking the very lips that God gave them and created them with. And and they use them to deny His very existence. They take the very breath that God gives them and they use it in ways that are absolutely counter to His will and counter to His purposes and destructive in their own lives and destructive in other people's lives. And you know something? God gives them another breath and another breath and another breath and God blesses them with sunshine and God puts rain on their house and He waters their garden and He does everything that He does for people who draw near to Him. Why? Because we live in the season of God's favor. But don't ever for a moment think that that season will last forever. If you were God... Would you allow people to curse your name and deny you forever? No, and God won't. He's already told us that He won't. But because this is the age of God's favor, God gives breath to those who curse His name in hopes that someday they would use that same breath to accept Jesus as their Savior and find their refuge in Him. So on that day when God calls a halt to everything and everything evil and ungodly is destroyed so that what is left is wonderful and beautiful for all, that they will have found their refuge in Jesus and will not be swept away because they have no Savior. Yeah. So we live in the age of God's favor. That's why you and I stand and celebrate. That's why we can sing. That, that's why we lift our hands. That's why we clap. That's why we enjoy life so much. It's even why we laugh at church. And in church, the reason we do that is because we live in the age of God's favor. His blessing is on us even when we're far away from Him. But there is coming a day when the choice that you make today will determine whether you live forever in God's 
unlimited favor in eternity or whether your last day on this earth is the last moment of God's favor you ever experience. So how does this end? Let's take a look. He rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant, and sat down. All eyes in the synagogue looked at him intently. Then he began to speak to them. And here's what Jesus said. The Scripture you've just heard has been fulfilled this very day. Jesus said, that's my ministry, and I'm launching it here today, and I want you to know that from this day forward, you're going to see every single one of those things happen. And did they happen? Did the blind see? Yes. Did the spiritually blind get their eyes open to the truth about life? And were they able to then differentiate between false ideologies that only appeared to be true but led to bondage and the truth that would lead them to freedom? Yes. Everyone spoke well of Him. And they were amazed by the gracious words that came from His lips. How can this be, they ask. Isn't this Joseph's son? Let me give you just a couple of thoughts about that. First of all, it's important that you would know that Jesus chose a personal culture of graciousness. Have you ever asked yourself what your personal culture is? In other words, what's kind of the culture that surrounds you, that you have crafted and built? If you don't know what it is, Maybe it would be good for you to ask the people who know you best, but be prepared, okay? It may not actually be the answer you want to hear. But I want to tell you that when Jesus opened His mouth, wouldn't it be wonderful if everyone who was irreligious in this town were to say about the people of the churches of this town, you know what I love about hanging out with Christians? They're just such gracious people. They're loving. They're accepting. They're kind. They're gracious. When they open their mouths, they speak with grace. Even when they disagree with what I do with my life, they do so graciously and never with venom and never with condemnation and never to find fault. Jesus chose a personal culture of graciousness. But even though He did that, second thing I want you to see is that some will always judge superficially. You know, some people in the audience at the synagogue that Sabbath morning, they looked at Jesus and they go, oh, don't give me that stuff out of the book of Isaiah about you being some guy who's going to give sight to the blind and release to the captives and, and, and you're going to give freedom to those who are oppressed and good news to the poor. Don't you kid me for a moment. I know who you are. You are the son of Joseph. You're no son of God. You're no, you're no Messiah. I know who you are. You were conceived in a moan of lust between Joseph and Mary before they ever got married. You're nothing but their illegitimate kid. You know, in a sense, the people at the synagogue in Nazareth that Sunday are symbolic 
of everybody in the audience this morning. Eventually, all of us decide that Jesus is either the Savior of the world and who He claimed to be, God in the flesh, the divine Son of God, or we conclude that He was nothing more than Joseph's son, the illegitimate son of Joseph and Mary in a moment of lust. I want to ask you two questions as we close. The first is the most important question that anyone will ever ask you in your entire lifetime. And that is, who is Jesus to you? If you decide that he's just Joseph's son, that it's a myth or a legend or whatever else to believe anything else, if that's what you decide, everyone in this church is going to love you just as much as before you made that decision. Your soul's worth just as much as it always was. The only difference is if you, if you reject Jesus, you've got to find a Savior somewhere else. And on the day that Jesus comes, we'll be heartsick, and so will you. For when you reject the one and only Savior of the world, the other choices, pretty slim pickings. The second question I want to ask is for those of you who have already decided that Jesus is far more than Joseph's son. He is the Son of God and your Savior. The question for you would be this. Does your personal culture match His? When people interact with you and when they're around you and when they come to your home and when they go out to eat with you or maybe even more importantly when they share the road with you or ride in your car or more personally for me when they, when they play golf with me, okay? Do they experience a personal culture of graciousness. Jesus said right up front, my ministry is about good news and graciousness. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we're so blessed that You brought good news and we're so blessed that when You opened Your mouth, You spoke not only the truth, but You spoke it in a way that was gracious. And Lord, today we pray that on the day that You come again, not a single person in our audience this morning would be found on the wrong side of that question of who is Jesus to us. And for those of us who have never made that choice, would You enable us to see our way to make that choice today? Not by coercion, not because somebody's twisting our arm, not because somebody's guilting us into it, but would you help us to make that choice because we recognize that, that Jesus is your wonderful gift to us and that to somehow reject or neglect Him would be just like the ultimate miss in our life, that we would have missed life's very best. And Lord, for those of us who have chosen to become followers of Christ, would You enable us this week to take an inventory of our lives and identify areas that those around us would not characterize as very gracious. And would You enable us to seek Your help?
so that our lives could be gracious through and through. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this week's sermon. You can find more information about New Life, including contact information and past sermons, at newlifepetaluma.org. Thanks for listening.